So again, we will be in Matthew chapter 10, continuing our series we've been doing for a while now uh, that we have called Your Kingdom Come as we go through the book of Matthew. And last week we talked about, uh, as we got into chapter 10, we kind of went back into the end of chapter 9 to where Jesus is telling them that the fields are ripe unto harvest to pray to the Lord of the harvest, as the laborers. Pray for the laborers, they go out in the harvest. And then uh, we jumped into chapter 10, and we find out that, in fact, you're not just to pray, but you are those going out. That it is both praying and going out on mission. So when he said, pray for the laborers, then you get to chapter 10, he says, and you're the laborers. And so it is with us, that we are to be praying for the harvest, we are to be praying for the laborers in the harvest, but then we are also to be the ones that are going out into the harvest, that we are to be living on mission. So last week we talked about the why of the mission. And to put it very succinctly, the why of going out on mission is people need the Lord. People need the Lord. I need the Lord every day. You need the Lord. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And we went over the four G's of the gospel. God is good. God is great. God is glorious. And God is gracious. And how those play into our life. And hopefully this last week, as you were in your community groups, the last two weeks, you went over these four G's. And how do we apply these to our life? But this week, I want to look at the urgency of the mission. As Jesus is sending out the disciples to go out on mission, there is a theme that we will see of that this is urgent, that it is, there is an urgency to going out and living on mission. But before we jump into the text, I want to just take a moment as almost kind of a disclaimer. And uh, if you have conversations with um, people, you're told in college and then Bible college and seminary, like, oh man, you're going to be just reading your Bible and everyone's going to come up and attack you. I've never actually had that happen. And I sit in a lot of coffee shops with the Bible. But people do have some questions and people have heard things like there is a uh, lot of controversy or things just don't make sense in the Bible and it's because most of the time they look at it as just a book without understanding the different contexts and that there is a timeline over thousands of years that this Bible was written throughout. And so I want to just kind of cover a couple of these uh, cultural or historical contexts of this passage, because when you get to especially verses 5 through 15, where we're going to be tonight, you can kind of say, that doesn't sound like Jesus, or that's not the Jesus that I know, or I've never heard this before. So I want to explain a couple things. Number one, and we hit this last week, the people that Jesus is addressing here, the disciples and the people that Jesus is talking to at this time period, are still under what we would call the Old Testament law or the Levitical law. Um, and a, for a lot of them, and definitely not true for all, but for a lot of the people at this time, it was just tradition. You just followed the law, you just did what it was, because that's what we've done for generations. Now, throughout 
um, the Old Testament prophecies and some of the things that we saw, there was always a group that was known as, um, at this time, they were referred to as the quiet in the land. And we see them in Luke 2 and um, uh, Simeon and I believe Mary, who they were just people that did not get involved in the politics of the time. They were just quiet and they prayed. And so when they bring Jesus to the temple, there are these two people who just went to the temple and prayed every day. Um, in some of the Old Testament prophecies, they're called the faithful remnant. So when I say that um, the people at this time, most of them were just in it because it's just what you did, or their idea of who the Messiah would be, or they were just going to temple because that's what you did, there wasn't a heart involvement in it. It was just tradition. It was just, you just do what you do. It's what we've always done. It's what we've done for generations. And some of the people and that Jesus is re- talking to here there was no heart. There was no relationship with God. It was just going through the motions because that's what we've always done. It's just what we do. Uh, Secondly, it's very clear, going back to Abraham, that the Jews were God's chosen people. He chose them to represent him, but he also, as we study the Old Testament, he chose them to represent him to the outside world, but it was also to invite the outside world, or what was known as Gentiles. Gentiles are just simply anybody that wasn't Jewish, to invite them into worshiping the one true God as well. And so it wasn't just go out and separate yourselves and never have anything to do with them. It was also to worship God and live it out in such a way that the outside world also wanted to be part of that. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, that there were people from other places, and a lot of times in Scripture, where they were from was also attached to their name. So uh, like Uriah the Hittite, that's letting you know he was a Hittite, but at some point it seems he chose to follow the God of Israel, and he would have gone through all of the different requirements, and we see this throughout the Old Testament of people from other places choosing to follow the God of Israel. And so that was what always was supposed to happen, is God's people were to represent and live in such a way that they were inviting people in to know the one true God, and so it is with us. We are to live in such a way that we are inviting people into God's kingdom and to know the one true God as we know one true God as well. Also, the gospel that we now know, that Jesus Christ came, that he took our punishment for sin, that he took our sins to the grave, and that he rose again, defeating sin and death, that we no longer have to suffer the consequences of those things, that didn't happen yet. So at this time, Jesus is alive, and the disciples believe that he's the Messiah, but what their belief what the Messiah is, is totally different than what we now know. They thought Jesus was going to be this great political leader, that he was going to be this great general, that he was going to be this leader of an army to defeat the Romans or to defeat, and everybody had kind of just purposed in their mind that whatever it was that annoyed them the most, Jesus came to beat them. Political leaders, religious leaders, Romans, whatever it was, fill in the blank. And so we see that, that even the disciples, uh, Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go die on the cross, and they're like, Uh, yeah, but when you're in charge of everything, can I be at your right hand? He's like, you don't get it. And this happens over and over again. He's saying, oh, you have little faith. Or, oh, you, and he's constantly telling them uh, what is going to happen, but they're not hearing it. They don't see it until after Jesus raises again from the dead. So at this point, they believe he's the Messiah, but their viewpoint of the Messiah is completely different. Uh, The disciples again, had been chosen by God, they were, or by Jesus, they were following Jesus, but again, 
uh, they had a different viewpoint of what Jesus was. So I wanted to explain those things before we jump into the text, so as we read through the text, it makes a little more sense. So chapter 10, starting in verse 5. Uh, Jesus gets done, and let's just go up to uh, verse 1. He's telling the disciples, you're going out. It lists the disciples that we went over last week, and then pick it up in verse 5. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Told you, kind of some weird or different sayings. Um, how many of you were upset at somebody after you watched a game at their house and your team lost and you took your sandals off and shook them off before you left their house? So it's not necessarily something that we still do today. Some of you are actually nodding, which concerns me. It's not, some of these sayings don't quite make sense, so I want to walk through uh, these verses really quick. So uh, verses 5 through 6, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. And you're like, uh, hang on, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, go out to everyone. Uh, we don't, there's different reasons, but at this point we see that the message is to go to the Jew first. Um, and we see Jesus also doing these things, and he's sending the disciples out, but he's saying, go to these specific villages and towns. Uh, as you go, proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. We see that going back to John the Baptist, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus gets baptized and immediately starts proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. And now Jesus is sending them out with the same message going into what he calls the lost sheep of Israel. So they go out. So the message was for the Jew first, then the Gentile, and this is actually the same methodology that we would see the disciples and apostles use when they would go out. It's when we were going through the book of Acts. It's what we saw Paul do. Paul would come into the different cities that he would enter in. I always think of uh, the city of Philippi. He came in. There was no synagogue. There was not enough Jewish men in Philippi for them to build a synagogue. And uh, he finds out that there's some Jewish women that meet outside the city at a river. He goes out there and he proclaims the gospel. And some, including one, a woman named Lydia, follows after Jesus, believes the gospel, and Lydia becomes a leader at the church in Philippi. So as he goes into these different cities, Paul would always find the synagogue or a collection of Jewish people, and he would proclaim first to the Jews, he says in Romans, and then to the Gentile. He'd proclaim to the Jew. At some point, Paul is 
in the nicest way, kicked out of the synagogue. Other times, the Jews drag him outside the town, and they stone him to death, or they think he's dead, or they beat him, or they do whatever happens to make sure that it is very clear that Paul's message has been rejected by the Jews of that city. And so then he starts proclaiming to the Gentiles, and we see the churches form in these different cities. And so the same is true. The, the message goes out to the Jew first. Then when we see, we'll go into the Great Commission in Matthew 28 at the end of this message, where we see Jesus say, now go out into all the world. I came, I went to the Jewish people first, the chosen people of God, and I've been rejected by some, most, not all, but now it is for the entire world. Uh, verses 7 and 8, read those with me. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in the beginning of verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. Quite simply, doing the work of the kingdom of God is how we represent the kingdom. Jesus, we see him, we just went over, he's doing all these miracles, and we said they are miracles, but actually, a better representation is Jesus is demonstrating that in the kingdom of God, the way that things were created is how they will be returned to when we are in home in heaven with him for eternity. So what Jesus is doing when he's doing these miracles is he is returning people to the proper order that they were created. Before sin entered the world and before all of these problems existed, Jesus is just returning them to what the kingdom of God will look like. The same is true for us. Now, you may not have the ability to do some of these things that are listed and uh, cleanse leprosy and heal people. Uh, we have the way means of, of praying for people. We have these different giftings, but what we do have is a direct command to do the work of the kingdom of God. Uh, the last couple years, and it was a bigger deal the last few years, of uh, churches splitting over this idea of social justice. Well, we're not getting involved in social justice. We just proclaim the gospel. When we represent the kingdom of God, it means that we live in such a way to represent what the kingdom of God will be. So the kingdom of God will not have racism. The kingdom of God will make sure that we are helping uh, oversee these different biases that we might have. It is making sure that the poor are taken care of. It is making sure of all of these different things in the kingdom of God, restoring them to the natural order. So as we live here on earth, we are to live in such a way that we are representing what the kingdom of God will be. In the case of the disciples, they were casting out demons, healing sick, raising dead, healing lepers, and they were doing all these things that normal people couldn't do. They were also, the miracles that they were performing were so drastic. So when it says that they would cleanse the lepers, understand when a leper is healed, and as we kind of talked about as we were talking about the healings that Jesus was part of, that meant that like fingers and noses were growing back. Uh, when they were healing people that hadn't walked and there was horrific muscle atrophy that is set in through their legs or their hands or their arms, it meant they were back and they were walking perfectly fine as if they'd been using their legs their entire life. And so these miracles that they are doing are something that there is no tricks can be faked. And it was very obvious that this was an act of the all-powerful God. And these gifts were primarily present when an apostle was first present in a city or region and was demonstrating that what they were saying was true and could only be done by God. 
They were representing that what they were saying was true and from God. In the second part of verse 8, where he says, freely you have received, so freely give, Jesus is saying, what these gifts that I'm giving you to go out and do, I've given them to you at no charge. So do not charge for them. When you go in, don't say, I will do miracles for the right price. Raising the dead, that's a big one. That's going to be 150K. They didn't go into the town. They went into the town to represent God, and so they were performing miracles to make sure that all the glory went to God. There was nothing about themselves. There was no attention that they were putting on themselves, and they weren't charging for these miracles. They were doing them to represent the all-powerful God and to bring glory to Him. And this might seem like it contradicts the next two verses, but trust me, I'll explain. So get into verse 9. He says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for your journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. This, maybe above all any other part of this passage, demonstrates the urgency of the mission. Jesus is literally saying, don't pack. Don't save trust me. Don't bring extra money. Don't even bother to bring an extra shirt or an extra pair of sandals. You just go. The message is urgent. The mission is urgent. You go. Have faith that I will take care of you, but you go. And also, we see this last part of that verse where he says, a prophet or a messenger is worth his keep. Now, again, to the Jewish people that he's addressing here, and the early part of the church where Paul is writing letters explaining this, it would have made sense. But just as we've been talking about, we started the year off talking about giving, this is where we see this come into play. In the Levitical law, which Derek mentioned when he preached on giving a couple weeks ago, we have to understand that when people brought stuff to the temple and their tithe, but there was also several other uh, areas of giving, there was other things that would be brought to the temple, that is also how the priests were able to live. Most people at this time had their own farm, they had their own animals that they were taking care of, but the Lord's people's sole focus, the Levites and the priests, they were to handle the temple, and they actually would rotate out with other priests, and they would have this time uh, and the different offerings or sacrifices that were being brought is also how the priests would take care of the, the tabernacle or the temple. It was also how the priests were taken care of. And so whenever people, whenever the Jewish people were not following after God, the temple would fall into ruins. The priests would have to leave the temple. They weren't able to carry out the duties because they also had to go home and make sure their families were being fed. So they'd have to go back to their own livestock and their own farms because the temple was empty. The storehouses at different times in the Old Testament, they were empty. They couldn't feed the widow. They couldn't take care of the orphans, and they couldn't feed the poor because people weren't giving sacrificially. Therefore, the storehouses of the temple were barren and empty. So they weren't able to do a good job of representing who God was in their community because the people would be so caught up with themselves they would stop giving, they would stop bringing. And then we get to Malachi where God finally confronts the priests. So what would happen is the priest who counted on the sacrifices to be able to feed himself, the other priests, and their families 
When the sacrifice stopped coming in, there was no food. And so if one guy showed up with a diseased lamb missing a leg, and obviously there's something wrong with this lamb, the priest would think, I should confront him because this is no good. They are not bringing their best, they're bringing their worst. The other side would be like, but that's also dinner. And if I tell him to go bring it back, the chances are he's never going to come back with another lamb. So I'll just take what I can get. And that's when God confronts the priest saying, you are accepting unacceptable offerings for me. Nobody would do this for their governor. Nobody would do this for their king. But for an all-holy God, you're fine with it. He also confronts the people on, you're not giving. Don't you trust me? If you gave like I told you to give, I would open the storehouses of heaven and dump out blessings on top of you. And the opposite is true as well. When people are excited about what God is doing, they give. They give as much as they can. One of my favorite stories, and I think it's every pastor in the world's favorite story, is the priests come to Moses when they start building the tabernacle, and the people are so excited to have a place to worship God, the priests come to Moses, can you please tell people to stop giving? There's just too much. We don't, we can't use everything that the people are giving. And this is how also happens at different times when they're building the temple or the tabernacle or the house of God is, is being started. People are so excited that they can't stop giving. And so with the church, how this translates here is he's saying the prophet is worth his keep. In other words, if you're doing the work of the Lord, there should be people that come alongside and make sure you're taken care of. So you just go, you just go and live on mission, and I will make sure everything else falls into place. This is then carried into the church of the New Testament. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy when he's instructing that you take care of the local church first. Uh, there was a bunch of conversations that I had when we were first in church planning saying, um, Paul did, you should go into bivocational. Paul was a tent maker and he also would help these churches. And I said, Paul wasn't a pastor. Paul was going and he was instructing churches and he was raising up pastors. But in 1 Corinthians, he actually says, I went and started working as a tent maker because you needed to take care of your pastor. You needed to take care of the leaders of the church in Corinth, and so I went and got a job to make sure that the church was taken care of first and foremost. The church at Philippi did so well in taking care that they had extra money that was then able to be given to gift to Paul to help fund his ministry as he was going around church planting. And so we've kind of lost sight of what that looks like now, and part of it where we are is, well, if my church shuts down, there's 14 other on the same road. I'll be all right. But the biblical mentality is we make sure that the church, we make sure that the leadership is able to go and do and serve God in a capacity without having to worry about finances, and so we give sacrificially to make sure that we are continuing to reach our community. That was a giant sidestep, but also why we talked about giving at the beginning was, again, this would have been very well known to the people of that culture, but something that we tend to overlook. Verses 11 through 13 says, as you enter the home, give it your blessing. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that house or town and shake the dust off your feet. These verses are full of cultural things, by the way, if you're not picking up on that. He's saying, go and you look for hospitable people. Um, 
It's very interesting to us when we, you've heard me mention the Cypress Project a bunch of times and Neil McGlowan and what that was. And he talked about kingdom-friendly people, hospitable people that might not necessarily know God, but who are what we call kingdom-friendly. And we have several of those in town that we've known really since we got here. Uh, The different companies or organizations who are um, led by people who have told me, I don't know God yet. And of course, our prayer is that they do. But they are hospitable people who love being able to pay for the grocery giveaway as a whole. They love being able to help out in different capacities. They love being able to um, be hospitable to the work that the church, not just us, but other churches, are doing in the community. But then also in Romans 12, we are told to be hospitable. As believers, we demonstrate that we are representing this kingdom of God by being hospitable, by welcoming people into your home. Tab and I are overwhelmed at the hospitality shown by so many of you and how some of you have understood that as well, of being taken care of, a place to stay, a car to borrow. The, the, Tab and I are, are literally overwhelmed at the people of this church and how you guys take care of each other. My favorite um, compliment that I love to hear by different people who start coming or by friends here, and you've heard me say it, is um, especially friends from out of town, and then Saturday night we'll grab dinner at my house, and I'll be like, so what'd you think? Just be honest with me. And I've had a couple friends say, Rob, that's not a church, that's a family. It's a family who takes care of each other. To me, that is such a beautiful representation of the kingdom of God, as we are hospitable, that we are there for each other. You've been there for Tab and I, you've been there for each other. Uh, during COVID, uh, I got a phone call from someone, they're like, I can't believe you did that. I said, did what? Like, we got home today, and there was all these groceries out on our porch. I don't know how you set that up, but I was like, I legitimately have no idea what you're talking about. And it was just a community group who knew that this family was hurting. And the community group in and of itself brought them, we had nothing to do with it. But it's, I'm so thankful for a church that takes care of each other, that loves each other, that demonstrates this hospitality, that demonstrates the people then assisting each other on this mission. What Jesus is also telling them is being able to discern whether you should continue or start again somewhere else. But he's also saying be willing to accept hospitality from the Lord's people, but also be a blessing and not a burden. How are we being a blessing, especially for us as Hope Church who count on other churches allowing us to use their stuff and their building? I also love that they would correct me and say, no, this is God's, and you're welcome to it. But how are we being a blessing and not a burden to the people who help us out? And so that's what the disciples are going out on mission, but they're told, find hospitable people, but be a blessing, not a burden. And then verses 14 and 15. find 14 here. Numbers are so small. Start back in 13, actually. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. This section of verses focuses on the judgment that is coming for those that reject the kingdom of God. 
we are told throughout the Bible of what that will look like, and it is not pretty. It is something that uh, even myself tend to shy away from talking about because of how powerful and overwhelming the judgment of God will be. And that's where that term, shake the dust off your feet, comes from. It's for these cities that will be destroyed, these cities that will wish they were Sodom and Gomorrah, even though Sodom and Gomorrah were, were turned into salt and had, I can't imagine what that was like to go through to the city of those people being destroyed in that way, and they're saying the people that reject the kingdom of God will wish they had it as good as Sodom and Gomorrah did. And so to shake the dust off your feet, that was a representation of, I want to make sure that there is no particle of dust on my shoe that might be from that city left on my feet just in case when judgment comes, I don't want to be confused for somebody from that town. And so to, make, to shake your dust off your feet means if I just pass through your town, I want to make sure zero particle of dust is left on me. That's how much I want to make sure I'm not associated with that town whatsoever. And so it was a figurative term, although sometimes it was carried out literally, meaning that when judgment comes on the city for their actions, you don't want to be associated with them even to a speck of dust. So in this, we see, in these section of verses, we see that there is an incredible urgency of the mission. And the question for us is, is there an urgency in the mission that you and I have been called to? Is there an urgency in the mission that you have been saved out of being, having to go through that punishment, but now is there an urgency in the mission that now you go and are representing? I want to go to Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. Again, this is a command uh, from God. Matthew 28 says, oh, it's up here. Then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I love this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Uh, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 7, says, he said to them, this is again Jesus talking to the disciples and the other followers, it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a change from this first mission being sent out in chapter 10 where he's saying only go to the lost sheep of Israel to hear. He's saying go to Jerusalem. And I love the thought process here. He goes, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they're like, sweet, we already live here. And he's like, and all Judea. And he's like, yes, I have family. And he's like, and Samaria. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We hate them. Like, as a group of people, we are dedicated to hating them, and they are dedicated to hating us. And then he says, and the rest of the world. And he's like, oh, okay, this is ridiculous. They're Gentiles out there. Samaritans were called half-breeds. Uh, they were the remnant of a 
people, I think the Assyrians came in and took anybody that was able-bodied and left the people that they didn't even see basically fit to even be slaves. And then they would move their people and assimilate their culture into them, and then they would take over the remaining. And so there was Jewish blood in the Samaritan people, but it was also mixed, and those tribes were lost of the north, and so they hated each other. They both viewed each other as the problem that needed to be taken care of. So now we see Jesus getting go into the lost sheep of Israel, don't go to the Samaria, and they're like, okay, deal. He says, and don't worry about the other nations, and now here he's saying, now you go out everywhere. This message is for everyone. And so there is a urgency of the mission. The, that word, go, even calling it the Great Commission, it is an officer, it is a, a ruling authority in the military giving a direct order that is to be followed. So there is an urgency of the mission. And what I want to talk about is the urgency of the mission and how it shows in our life. So the urgency of the mission is shown in, number one, our faith in the mission. The urgency of the mission is shown in our faith in the mission. Understand, faith always dictates action. We have talked about it before, how if you have faith that something is the best, you tell other people about it. Um, anybody in here have a Stanley water jug with a straw? Raise them up if you got them. They're not in here, but you left them out. Okay. Raise them up if you have one. If you own a Stanley water jug with a handle and a straw in it, raise your hand. Has anyone seen these? People love them, and they can't stop talking about them. So, like, say it's your wife's birthday, and you put off buying a gift, and so you go to buy a gift that day. You can't find one in the store. They are sold out everywhere. I heard somebody did that recently. You have to order them online. There's still a wait. Why? People love them. They tell everybody you need one, and so they get them. In pre-service, like, half of them had them with them. Why? You believe in them. You think they're the best. You tell everybody about them. It doesn't matter. In the past, we talked about crypto or, or essential oils. Whatever it is that you love and you think everybody should have, you tell people about it. If you truly believe in something, your actions will be directly related to it. If I said, hey, somebody's car out there, before I got up here, I went out and I taped $1,000 underneath it. I did not. Let's be clear. I did not do that. But if I said that and you believed me, you would run out. You would not start your car. You would check underneath it to see if it was there. If you don't believe me, you would do exactly what you did. Oh, really? You didn't leave. I saw it. Your actions show your belief. And so if we think, and I don't want to make this in, in any way light, but if we think of the gospel as a product, what greater product is there, especially as we talk about the four G's of the gospel, that God is good, God is great, God is glorious, and God is gracious, and how those immediately apply to every part of our life, if we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, and no matter what we encounter in our life, we see through it with a gospel filter, we can't help but talk about it. Chances are, throughout the course of the last month, you've talked to somebody about a problem you have. Maybe it's with another human being, maybe it's with your job, maybe, but there's a 
I'd, I'd bet on that, and I don't bet unless it's a sure thing. You've talked to somebody about a problem, or somebody has talked to you about a problem that they have. How often do we immediately go to the gospel and say, how do we, how do we preach the gospel into this problem that we have? How do we ha- live through this problem with faith, but also talk about it? How do we represent the gospel to the people around us? If we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, the people around us will take notice, and the people will see that there is an answer to their problem, and it's the gospel. Number two, the urgency of the mission is shown in obedience to the mission. This kind of goes along with this pattern. There is faith, and if we truly believe something, then we will obey it. If there is faith in God and he tells us to go and live and be on mission, there should be obedience to the mission. Don't waste your entire life preparing. As we look at this passage, when Jesus says to go, obedience is expected. When he says to go and tell the people, when he says to go, it is a direct order. Obedience is expected. The Puritan pastor in the 1600s, his name was Thomas Adams, he said, true obedience hath no lead at its heels. True obedience goes. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, uh, in Hebrews 11, he talks about all these people that live by faith. Uh, Years ago, we did a a summer sermon series called Saints and Sinners. The people that he talks about living by faith had some serious flaws, but he says they obeyed. They weren't the best for the job, but when God sent them, they went. And then you come to Hebrews 12, and he talks about the sin that so easily entangles us, and that sin is lack of faith. Lack of faith results in disobedience. We talked about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning when you give the angels a command and you tell the angels what your will is, they obey. Here he's telling the disciples, don't bother packing, just go, I'll take care of you. And he says the same thing to us, go, live on mission. And our response is, wait. The angels don't take years to prepare to act in obedience. They just do. Again, think of this as a military term. And so when we think about it in a military way, it is a general standing over you. And it is saying, hey, we are going to charge the enemy over there. And in this case, we've already been promised the victory. Amen? We're called more than conquerors. He says the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. So we're going to charge them. And our response is, you know what I want? A cheeseburger. And he's like, no, we are going on this mission. I love a good cheeseburger with bacon. Can I get bacon? We are charging the gates of hell. They cannot prevail against us. And cheese. Cheese is key to a good cheeseburger. People are agreeing. I heard more amens for that. than. We get caught up in the preparation, and we don't realize how much time goes by, and we think we need more preparation. 
And when it comes to uh, this last Thursday morning as we were praying, um, realizing we get so caught up on things that just don't matter, we forget what the mission is. We are to obey. We go. We obey our commanding officer. When he says, charge, we charge. He says, go and preach. We go and preach. When he says, represent the kingdom where you live, learn, work, and play, we represent the kingdom where we live, learn, work, and play. When we are to be ministers of the gospel, we minister the gospel to the people that we come in contact with. And number three, the urgency of the mission is shown in the understanding of the coming judgment. Understand, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. The people that God has put in your life where you live, learn, work, and play are not guaranteed tomorrow. If there has not been urgency, a sense of urgency that you felt when we talk about having faith, if there hasn't been a sense of urgency when we talk about obedience, my prayer is that when we start to talk about the coming judgment of every being, that we start to understand that there should be urgency to this. The great Puritan John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, if you have never read Pilgrim's Progress, please read Pilgrim's Progress. He says, at the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, did you believe, but were you doers or talkers only? Hebrews 9.27 says, people will die once, and after this, the judgment. Understand, everyone will face the judgment. This isn't something that is talked about very much, which, shame on me, shame on us, because of it, was it enough that your belief should result in constant celebration that you are inviting people into, or in obedience to what you have been saved from and called to? The fact that there is a coming judgment should be an incredible motivation in and of itself. You see, if we have faith that what God says is true, then we should have faith that there is a coming judgment. And a judgment that will be so hard that people will wish they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. If nothing else that you've heard tonight has resonated with you, understand that those people that God has placed in your life are going to be facing a judgment of eternity separated from God in hell. That should bring a different aspect to it when we think about it, to how are we praying for the harvest, but also how are we engaging in the harvest. Ian DeGuide, who is the Old Testament professor at Cambridge University, he said, The Lord waits so long in his graciousness that people think he cannot judge, but when he does come in judgment, it is so decisive that it seems as if he cannot show mercy. For this is not the sudden anger of an irritable temper, easily inflamed but equally easily pacified. This is deliberate, measured wrath, following a full investigation of the facts. There can be no last-minute appeals or reprieves, for there is no higher court to whom appeal can be made, and no pertinent facts have been overlooked in reaching the verdict. So it was with Sodom and Gomorrah, and so it shall be at the end of history. So how do we 
see with the eyes of Jesus? We talked about last week. How do we see with compassion and love? How do we see the people that we are surrounded by, the people who God has in his sovereignty placed you to have a form of influence on? Uh, We talk a lot about pi squared cards, and I have some up here. If you would like one, please come and get one from me. They're very simple. They say, pray, invest, invite, and on the back, as you can see, there's just a place to write five names. You don't need a magical card. This is just a strategy that we use to help us remember to pray for people. Write it down on a piece of paper. Write an alarm on your phone that will remind you when to pray. If you already have an alarm set for Matthew 9.38 at 9.38, name that alarm, five people's names to remind you to pray for them, right there. But pray for them. But don't stop there. I would say pray is Matthew 9. Matthew 10 is invest and invite. Go, do something, invest in their lives, spend time with them. Time equals love. How are you spending time investing in their life? And invite them, invite them to community group, invite them to church, invite them most importantly to know Jesus. Pray, invest, invite. If you want a card, come up afterwards and I will gladly give you one. We also have invite cards that are on the back table. They're just business cards inviting people to church. Talk to people as if their eternity depended on it. Talk to people understanding that God has sovereignly placed you exactly where you are to represent Him and to tell them of who Jesus is to you. Like we said last week, do you believe all that Jesus said he has done for you? Because if you do, it'll show in your life and you can't stop talking about it. How are you also uh, going to Romans 12? Are you living in hospitality? Are you welcoming those in who are ministering, who are teaching the word of God, who are coming and serving God? Are you living in a way that the your possessions are God's? Are you giving in a way that what you have is for God to fulfill his mission? Is that mission permeating every aspect of your life in such a way that all you can do is point to God and say it's all because of him, all glory to him? Are you living in such a way that people are looking at your life going, I must have that? Lord, I thank you that you have called us. Lord, I thank you that you have saved us from the punishment that we so deserved of doing nothing but sinning against you constantly. Lord, I thank you that you also gave us your spirit to be able to do the work that you have called us to. Lord, I pray that you would help us to listen to your spirit. You would help us to rely on your spirit to do what you have called us towards. Lord, I pray that we would have a sense of urgency so that the people that you have sovereignly placed us in their lives, that we would represent you in a way that they would understand how awesome you are. 
Lord, I pray for the other churches in our community, Lord, that we would be passionate about telling other people about you, that we would see a change in our community, not because of us, but because of you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.